Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. You know, we, we may have doubled in 2020, but it might not have been enough to truly notice it. Whereas last year, when we backed that up with another good hatch, we about doubled it again. I'm getting a lot more, you know, reports from folks that they're seeing more birds than they have in, in years on their property. And if we can get another one of those, you know, seasons or that are a little drier this summer, that, I mean, we could be, you know, we could be right back there and then kind of at the top of our game, of our populations where it would be at its kind of peak. You know, I'd anticipate probably right around 12,000 birds. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast, presented by Inland. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kyle Lee. If you want to watch exclusive full-length video episodes with each of our guests, receive a free Ozark-inspired sticker every single month, and get a shout-out on a future episode, then sign up for the White River Club on our Patreon. The link is in the show notes, and your support goes a long way. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe. Now, here's the episode. What's up, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Ozark Podcast. You've got Kyle Veet on the mic, as always, and I am joined by my co-host of the show, Mr. Adam Treese. How's it going? It's good, man. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Weather's warming up, April. Absolutely. Yeah. And that means turkey season is coming up. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, I, last week we had, uh, I think it was last week we had the episode, us kind of talking turkey 101 and it's funny now because we've we've actually got the privilege of being joined by um, Mr. Jeremy Wood of Game and Fish. He is Arkansas Game and Fish uh, Turkey Program Coordinator. If I, I think I said that right, and um, and so it's funny we're coming off the the Turkey One Hundred and One talk, and now we're going to talk with the expert on on all things turkey in Arkansas. So um, so we're going to elevate the the knowledge here. A yeah, because I mean there was several several times we had to be fact checked in our episode yeah. for turkey hunting or you know turkey basics. So it was only fitting to have an expert get on the pod for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, just want to say thank you, Jeremy, for for coming on the podcast and uh, and welcome welcome to the show. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Very cool. We're looking forward to it too. Um, so just wanted to kick things off and um, as as the turkey program coordinator, you know, some people may have an idea about about what what that person is, what you do, what your role is. Obviously, you coordinate the turkey program, uh, but but the the insides and, you know, the kind of the guts of that, what exactly is your role with Game and Fish? Yeah, so so as you mentioned, you know, I am the turkey program coordinator for the state. So that's responsible for statewide management of wild turkey populations here in Arkansas. Um, as coordinator, it's it's basically me. But then on top of that, I work with several other biologists, many other biologists throughout the agency across the state. You know, within our private lands program, within our our wildlife management division, within our enforcement 
um, branch of the agency to help better manage turkeys across the state. Um, you know, I can't be everywhere at once. There's there's no way I can do my job without all these folks. Um, so, you know, I'm responsible for, for monitoring survey data each year. You know, we put out several different surveys that are open to the public, open to the agency um, that help generate a lot of the data that we rely on, uh, as well as monitoring harvest rates uh, through some research that we have. And we can talk about that a little bit later in the in the podcast and uh, monitoring harvest itself, you know, looking from year to year. You know, we just had our youth youth season open up this past weekend. So I've been looking at the numbers coming off of that already. Uh, it looks like we're going to be kind of in line where we've been the last couple of years, which, oh, that's cool. you know, is, is, isn't too bad. You know, I, I anticipate with some of the regulations we put in, you know, just a couple of years ago that, you know, we've reduced some of that harvest, you know, initially. So some of that being right online with the last couple of years shouldn't be a big deal. That, yeah. that should be good to see. Um, and that's kind of about it. You know, I've just, kind of keep up with the, the science as it's going around, um, you know, within our state, as well as other states, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Southeastern Wild Turkey Working Group, which is made up of all the program coordinators throughout 15 Southeastern states. So basically Oklahoma, Texas, East, all the way to the uh, Carolinas and Virginias and okay. South. Um, so I'm a member of that, keep up to date with all the research that's that's coming in from those states as well. So a lot of things that we're seeing here in Arkansas are, are things that are are being being seen in a lot of other states. So there's a lot of concern, you know, with these declining populations that you know we've been seeing in recent years. And so trying to keep abreast of all that information and see what, you know, what's useful for us here, help, you know, provide some direction for future research, you know, here in the state as well. Yeah. Absolutely. So I got to ask, what what is your what is your background? I mean, um, when you when you went to school, maybe yeah, if you could just tell me a little bit about like where you're from, where you went to school. Um, kind of just curious about your background, and how you got to be where you're at. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm not originally from Arkansas. I'm actually originally from Massachusetts. So you know, I've been told that I'm a I'm a damn Yankee. I came down here and I stayed, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but I went and got my undergraduate degree up at the University of Maine uh, in Orono, Maine. Uh, in wildlife ecology back in 2009. And from there, I kind of jumped around the country for a long time, trying to figure out what on earth I wanted to do in the wildlife field. I wasn't really sure when I was there in school. So I jumped around. I worked with a lot of endangered species, um, got into a little bit of game bird management, worked on a couple different turkey projects. And that's that's really what struck, struck me. And I realized, you know, I, I had a real interest in hunting. I hadn't done it growing up. I, I fished a lot. And went to school with the idea that I'm going to get into the, the wildlife management side of things because, you know, I don't want to get into fishing. That's what I love to do. And okay. well, turns out now I love to love to hunt. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't hardly fish, but got into working with turkeys that led into my master's research with the uh, University of Georgia, the Warnell School of Forestry there in Athens, Georgia. So I looked at the reproductive ecology of female wild turkeys in response to small-scale growing season prescribed fires. So prescribed fires that are burning this time of year through the, you know, into June, you know, smack dab in the middle of turkey nesting season. Yeah. Um, and, I, and once I graduated with my master's, I ended up going down to the state of Florida. I worked for their Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission as the assistant wild turkey program coordinator. And I was there for about a year or so when this position opened up and you know, I took a chance and uh, the agency took a chance on me to see if we can get things going right in a positive direction. 
Nice. Very cool. So that was, how long have you been in this position then? I've been in this position for a little over three and a half years now. So it'll be four years at the end of August this year. Okay. Very nice. Mm. Jeremy, have you, or did you ever do any work with Arkansas or ever even visited Arkansas before you took the position? I actually had my, my wife got her master's up in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas with the, the Arkansas uh, Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit there on campus. Um, she was doing some research on the spring migration ecology of American woodcock. And so she was there for several years. And that was at the time where I was still kind of jumping around, taking tech jobs in other places. And so I, I'd spent some time in northwest Arkansas and then immediately started my, my master's over in Georgia. Uh, while she was still here, so kind of flip flop back and forth for a little while before before ultimately coming back up here. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, well, I'm I'm sure then you've gotten to do some hunting around this area since you've been here a couple of years, and um, you've gotten to kind of to learn some of the unique features about the Ozarks in Arkansas. Um, is, is there anything that sticks out to you as I'm thinking about it? Just hunting here versus hunting elsewhere, uh, maybe for turkeys specifically, what, what are some of the unique challenges that you kind of run into here or just with Arkansas turkey in general? Well, the big thing, I mean, you know, coming here, I'd spent a lot of time in basically the flatlands, you know, there was, you know, no topography, what to speak of in right. South Georgia, Florida. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts on the coast. There's really not a whole, whole hell of a lot of topography up there. There's some, but it's, it's nothing like the mountains that, you know, we have in the Washtos and the Ozarks. So right. you're trying to understand how, how to hunt turkeys and that kind of terrain has been a bit of a learning curve. Um, you know, I've got on birds since I was here, but it took me, it took me three years. It took me to this last spring to actually, um, you know, harvest my first turkey in Arkansas. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I thought I was, you know, an okay turkey hunter before coming <laughs> here and you know, they, they put me in my place pretty quick. Yeah. Well, that gives us hope, Kyle. Yeah, it does give me <laughs> hope. The mountain birds are tough. They're, they're like you said, just very different from, I, I grew up hunting flatlands too. Um, and they're just completely different to hunt, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. They're, they're tough. I had, um, I had this last year I was, I was turkey hunting by myself and I came down this hill and I actually saw a couple of turkeys run across this field in front of me. And um, I I have to just say that at the end of the day, long story short, they outsmarted me because I got down. I thought they were coming right up. They were coming across this hill in front of me. I kind of posted up at the top of the hill, got behind a tree, and I just thought they, you know, I, I cl- uh, you know yelped a few times, and I thought they just walked straight up the hill towards me. And so I'm sitting there, and after like 15 seconds, I don't see them. They disappear. And then 30 seconds later, I hear one and it's directly behind me, like 10 feet back. And it had just <laughs> looped around me around the hill and it had used the topography to its advantage. When I thought I had the upper hand, I'm on top of the hill. I can see this bird. And um, it totally just outsmarted me. And it's it's humbling when you get outsmarted by a bird that, you know, their brain is the size of a, a walnut or, you know, a Coke. I don't, I don't know exactly how big, but just a tiny little bird brain. I was like, how did that thing get to yeah. me? Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've had similar experiences since I've been here. You know, I got on a bird two years ago. I thought it was when it was going to happen and got on in the morning, had somebody else come in on me and he, he ended up taking off on the other side of the hill. And I, I knew where he was roosted that night. So I was like, I'll come back in here in the afternoon and see and ended up having a guy come back in on me again. But we started going back and forth calls. I tried to, you know, let him know I was there and we got kind of into you know, this is kind of yelling fest on the turkey calls. I think he thought I was, he thought I was a hen. And all of a sudden that bird gobbles at 50 to 60 yards away. And I was like, Oh, I, 
I know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to come skirt around the head of this little little draw, and he's going to stop right down on this little bench below me, and I'm going to have a perfect shot to him. Well, you know, they ne- they never do exactly what you think no. they're going to do. And so I'm sitting there waiting. I knew he wasn't moving all that much. So, I mean, I haven't even taken my safety off. I have a, a red dot on this gun, which I've only used for one season now. Um, I was sitting there, and the next thing I know, he's 15 feet away from me, basically. He just popped over. He came straight at me, popped up 15 feet just over the lip of the hill. And I was like, oh, geez, oh, <laughs> I'm not, no, no time to do anything. And he, he saw me as soon as he crested that and took off flying. And, and that was it. Yeah, so, yeah, they're tough. You win some, you lose some. Yeah, it's true. It's cool. I, I always enjoy just, you know, if I can even find some, if I can even put eyeballs on on some in the up here in the Ozarks. I usually kind of count that as as a moral victory, basically. Yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, that's pretty good. I didn't kill yeah. it, but that's pretty good. Entertaining weekend. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so you mentioned you mentioned a little bit about when and and we were talking a little bit offline before this, Jeremy. But um, you talked to me a little bit about um. Sometimes you guys you guys in in, in your role you make habitat recommendations, um. And you know you're you're making some of these different regulations across the state. Uh. What is an i ideal habitat for turkey and poult reproduction and you know what what would you if you had to kind of create a perfect world for turkeys um what would you create what are some of the factors that you're looking for so i mean primarily when you sit there and you try to think about what ideal turkey habitat is you, you kind of think about this kind of a mix it's you know it's a spectrum so you know there's some variability in this but generally you know you're probably looking at 30 to 40% open land, 60 to 70% forested habitat. And that can be all intermixed. So it's not, you know, 30, 40% on one side of this, you know, square, and then everything else is forested on the rest. Right. You know, having that interspersion of those habitats is really important. Um, Hardwoods are really important for wild turkeys. You know, they really like to, to roost in those areas. They tend to be a little bit thicker. Um, from time to time, you know, you can get in some areas, you know, particularly like, you know, behind me on the computer screen, I know everybody won't be able to see this, but <laughs> this is in a glade habitat, um, just outside some woodlands and kind of north central, the eastern Ozarks, um, real open habitats, really lush. There's a lot of low growing grassy herbaceous plants in this, in this system, which is ideal nesting cover. I mean, nesting and brooder and habitat primarily are the most limiting factors for turkeys in, in a lot of states within the east, including Arkansas. You know, we go out and you look at a lot of forested landscapes here in the state and you see a lot of pine trees, a lot of hardwood trees. And then the understory is basically leaf litter or pine straw. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's not a lot of really good opportunities for those turkeys to go and nest. I mean, they'll do it. They'll nest in there, but they're a lot more vulnerable in a in a landscape that looks like that compared to what what we're looking at here on the screen um you know you're talking veggies well i was gonna say and for anyone who's listening um if you do want to watch this video um head on over to our patreon page we've got the full length video episode um of of this recording so if you want to see jeremy if you want to see us and see what he's talking about here um make sure you go head over to our patreon um but quick shout out back to you jeremy (laughs) All right. No, no, that sounds good. I, did, I wasn't aware we were going to have the video for folks. So, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at that that picture, I mean, you're looking at really kind of somewhat thick vegetation. It's not, 
It's not so thick that you or I can't move through it, which means, you know, a turkey can move through it pretty well. There's still some bare ground spots underneath that, that pults can move through well. You know, you have insects down low that are easy for those pults to get at and eat. You know, it's, and it's providing that cover to be protected from predators, you know, whether they're aerial predators, whether it's bobcat, coyote, you know, you name it, pretty much everything under the sun is trying to eat a turkey from the time that it's an egg all the way up to time it's an adult. Right. But, but yeah, in general, you know, you're looking at that 30, 40% open, 60 to 70% forested, all interspersed amongst itself. And that way you have some of that fall and winter habitat those areas may be a little bit thicker, more overstory, um, you know, oaks with a lot of hard mass in the fall, if you get a good, um, acorn crop, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, if you, you know, you miss a crop, you've still got a lot of, you know, green herbaceous vegetation out there that, you know, is the primary uh, food source for a lot of adult birds. So as long as you still got a lot of that green vegetation, they can still make it in that area when, when they do have kind of a miss in, the, in that acorn crop. Yeah. Yeah. On that, on that note, when, when you're kind of thinking about like, if I'm, if I'm a landowner and I've got, you know, um, let's say a hundred acres and I'm thinking about what, what my habitat looks like when you, when you talk about making habitat, habitat recommendations, is that what you're kind of doing is saying, Hey, you know, you've got 90% hardwoods. You need to uh, maybe do some clearings or you need to, do some things to increase the the habitat here. Are you kind of surveying? Do you do some of that surveying for private lands or is it public lands? I, I do get out and do some, some assistant with private lands. Uh, we do have a private land staff within the agency. So okay. those folks are the ones that are typically out on the ground working with landowners. They work with, you know, different program coordinators. So myself, uh, we have quail program coordinator, deer program coordinator, and so on. Excuse me. And, um, so those staff work primarily hand in hand with those private landowners, get out there, do site visits on the ground, take a look at what their property has to offer. They also try to take a look in, you know, in the context of what's, you know, around them. Cause you know, when you really think about it, you know, managing a hundred acres for a wild Turkey is, you know, you're, you're not going to do it all on that right. property, but you can still make it more attractive to a Turkey that's using that, that general area. You know, their home range size is probably, you know, going to be getting up in the, you know, here in Arkansas, we have some of the largest home range sizes, you know, that have been recorded. And I think you're starting to get up in the upwards of even three to five miles or so in size. Really? I mean, the relatively large home range sizes. And a lot of that, you know, is probably due to a lot of the succession that you're, we've been seeing here in the state with, with our, um, forested landscapes where you're getting a lot more trees in there. There's a lot less sunlight hitting the ground. And so they're having to cover a lot more ground to get the, the resources that they need. Um, but, but yeah, so I'll go out occasionally on these site visits. Typically what we're doing is, is kind of looking in that broader context of what's, what's around the area and what's on their property. More often than not, you know, in those forested sands, you know, a lot of Arkansas would have historically been much more open than it is. So we do a lot of recommendations in the form of woodland or savanna type management where you're going in there and either, you know, recommending a commercial harvest if it's if it's feasible. If it's not, um, you might be looking at some sort of like a mid-rotation type management going into wildlife or timber stand improvement 
uh, depending on which side of the things you you come at it from. But that's going in there and, and looking at your your mid story and sometimes your over story and going in there and using either mechanical or chemical means to thin that stand, okay. reduce the overall canopy cover, put more sunlight on the ground, and then in combination, typically looking at using some prescribed fire to go roll through there, eat up all that fuel that's in the understory, create some some contact with mineral soil, expose that to the sunlight and then expose that seed bank that's been there in the soil for many years that's basically just been blotted out by the by the trees you know hasn't been getting any sun down there and all of a sudden as soon as you get some rain you get some some sunlight on it those seeds come you know start sprouting and you you can see what you really got to work with and so that's a lot of what we're looking to do in the state and we do with that landowners gotcha gotcha Hmm. jeremy from a practical sense i guess just an average turkey hunter a big challenge is finding where the turkeys roost what from your like from your research and um, experience what is like an ideal spot for a turkey to roost ideal it's it's variable i mean they they like larger mature trees um it's you know sometimes it's hardwood sometimes it's pines some of that can depend on the the weather you know that they may you know use some of those pine stands for more thermal cover if if you get a really nasty evening whether it's colder or, or wetter uh, to ride out a storm uh, so typically for me here in, in arkansas you know i'm looking often in, in draws you know off the top of a, a you know big ridge where it's some finger ridges coming out so they tend to seem to like to go into those areas sometimes they'll settle on benches off of those those main ridges that you can find um and primarily, it's sometimes, you know, there, there's more roosting habitat in this state and, and many states in the east than there are turkeys to, to utilize them. So a lot, of, a lot of it's covering ground and just trying to figure out, you know, where they are in a given area. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you'll, you'll probably go through a lot of areas that you think would be ideal roosting cover. And, you know, they aren't there. But, you know, then you'll find those handful of spots that they just really seem to like. And, you know, there's probably a couple other factors that are going into that other than just the trees. Maybe, you know, how easy they can get in and out of it, you know, in the evening, in the morning, you know, how thick the, the understory and midstory is in that area. So that they can, you know, not be concerned about predators as they're, mm-hmm. they're getting down in the, in the early, those kind of crepuscular hours where it's, you know, they're still having a hard time seeing themselves. You know, they, they don't want to be easy prey if they can help it. Hmm. I got you. That makes sense. I was I was wondering if you had any insight as to why they might be on the top of a ridge, you said, or kind of overlooking a draw, maybe. Um, is that just for a sense of like a visual for them? Ease of access, like, you know, stays away from predators easily. Any insight there? Yeah, so I mean, some of it's probably security. Uh, making sure that they're, you know, in a spot where they can see. I mean, they're they're a highly visual animal. I mean, they, they can hear pretty well, but they're really focused on their eyes. I mean, if they can see something that doesn't look right, I mean, think about it when you're out there in the woods and you're hunting them. If they, if they see something that's just out of place, that's not wrong, you know, they're alarm putting and they're getting they're getting out of dodge mm-hmm, pretty yeah. quick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we actually had it. So, sorry, go ahead. No, oh, no, well, only other thing I would add is, you know, typically, you know, if you're you're sitting there this time of year, you're going out in the spring and hunting, you know, the 
a primary deal for turkeys is the hens go to the gobblers. You know, we're, we're trying to do the exact opposite of what they're naturally supposed to do and get those gobblers to come to us. Really? So that. that gobbler, yeah. So that gobbler can sit up there in the tree and be watching, you know, a lot of times, you know, when those hens are really actively breeding, they come and they roost in and around that gobbler. And so sometimes they'll hold up there in the tree until they actually see what's calling to them. And, and then they'll fly down so they can have those breeding opportunities. And <laughs> That's so funny because, yeah, I mean, we're literally doing the exact opposite of what they're naturally wanting to do. Yeah. And you just think of normal wildlife. Usually it's the, the, um, the male seeking the female yeah. rather than, I guess it's the other way around with turkey. Yeah. Hmm. When I think about deers, like you've got bucks chasing does yeah. and they're, you know, they're, basically killing themselves to chase after right. these does and, and running all over the place. But turkeys, their natural instinct is, is the opposite is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and they'll cover ground. I mean, just like, you know, bucks in the rut, you know, they lose a lot of their, their body fat in the fall. Turkeys will do the same. I and mean, we've caught birds, you know, when I was doing my master's research, it was primarily on hens, but we had a few gobblers that we abandoned and radioed and, I remember catching some of those birds up at, you know, 19, 20 pounds, and then somebody would shoot it later on and they'd be down to 15 pounds, wow. you know, hmm. several, several weeks through the season. They've just been focusing more on those breeding opportunities than and worrying about getting food. Yeah. Yeah. Does that, I'm curious now, um, does that change your style of hunting at all? I mean, instead of um, hitting a hen yelp and, and trying to bring a gobbler to you, do you try to play to that natural instinct and, and maybe you're doing more um, gob, gobbler calls or, or Jake um, Jake calls or something to to kind of emulate. Um, there's another male in the area versus trying to bring a gobbler to a female to a hen. Do you change up your style so, at all? Your hunting tactics? Uh, I personally don't. I mean, some some birds. I mean, they, they still get curious. They they still are going to come in. Particularly as you get later in the season. You know, now that we've started timing our season a little bit later and allow more of that breeding activity before we get out there and start start harvesting the males there's a lot more of those females on the landscape that have gone to nest they're not they're not receptive so those males are starting to kind of seek out the the females that are remaining a little bit more often which then makes them a little bit more vulnerable to that calling okay but you know primarily I, i shoot to try to be where those birds are wanting to go so if i I'm lucky enough to get enough time to go scout and, and have a good idea where they're going later in the morning, as opposed to, you know, right there. I know exactly where the rooster is because, you know, you get set up within a hundred yards of the rooster tree, that bird still can fly down, you know, anywhere in 360 degrees. And he may have no intentions of going the direction you're going. Right. So I, I try to use the landscape and my understanding of where they want to be to my advantage and then kind of get set up in between. And hopefully, hopefully I've, I've guessed right yeah. that morning. Yeah, absolutely. That is interesting. I, I never knew that. Um, one of the other things I, I wanted to ask you about, and we talked about it um, a little bit offline, you said you in your role you get to work with the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, what what do you do with them? Uh, and, and that's a group. Well, just tell me a little bit about them and, and what your role is with them and how you work together. Yeah, so the so National Wild Turkey Federation is a, a conservation organization. It was founded back in 1973 um, with a strong interest in, in seeing wild turkey populations expand and, and increase throughout the country. Um, you know, the history of wild turkey populations throughout the U.S., um, you know, they 
from early settling all the way and you know as populations expanded across the u.s from east to west you know we we saw a lot of those turkey populations get exploited you know through excessive timber harvest over hunting uh, market hunting uh, to the point that there were very few turkeys around on the landscape you know and here in arkansas you know we got down to i think the lowest point by about the early 30s and 40s there was maybe only seven thousand birds you know in the entire state wow. which you know you contrast that with you know just past this past year you know we had a one of the lower harvests we've had in the last 20 years but we still harvested about seven thousand birds alone so wow. you, yeah. you sit there and look at what our, our population was to imagine that we could now harvest seven thousand birds and that still be a sustainable sustainable hunt is you know pretty incredible but so the national wild turkey federation itself they assisted a lot of states with trap and transfer programs so you know early efforts when we were out trying to restore turkey populations relied on a lot of game farm turkeys that were basically captive raised you know i, I hear a lot of, from folks that you know ask why we're not doing this uh, the reality is we, we've been there and we've done that and it doesn't work okay all you know, these birds they, they haven't grown up in a with the social setting you know from the time that hens lay in her clutch she sat on it for a month you know that towards the end of that process before they start to hatch you know they're already starting to communicate back and forth between the egg before they hatch so those wild those wild birds you know have some innate understanding of, of social structure and hierarchies whereas you go into those game farm settings and those turkeys are you know raised in an incubator and then they're you know all sent out into this big you know, field and, or chicken house type, you know, kind of area and raised all together and expected to, you know, have some understanding of predators and all this, this stuff. And that, and they really don't. Yeah. So when we started moving to trap and transfer of actually wild caught birds, you know, that's when populations really started to skyrocket and NWTF came in to help a lot of states, particularly with you know, issues surrounding moving birds from state to state. You know, some states didn't have turkeys, so you, you had to get around um, federal regulations, Lacey Act, moving wildlife across state lines, and they were able to help with a lot of that, uh, those logistics. And, you know, they were putting turkeys in boxes and sending them out on planes, driving them on trucks, you know, across oh, wow. state lines to, to get those birds out on the landscape. Where were they They've coming from? Yeah. All over. I mean, you know, basically every state, almost every state probably had birds moving to or from, you know, from it, from different states. So, I mean, I think a lot of birds, you know, there's a lot of birds early on that came from Pennsylvania, Missouri. Uh, Pennsylvania had a lot of the, the early captive reared um, facilities. And then, but then eventually they too, you know, had wild stock birds that they were moving around. Um, Missouri, the same, you know, they've had a pretty healthy turkey population for a long time. They moved a lot of birds. I think we moved, uh, we probably moved a few birds out of state. Most of the birds we, we got, we actually received from other states or we captured along the, the Mississippi River. A lot of them came from Brandywine Island um, over in the Mississippi. And then those were used to repopulate areas. And as those areas took off, we, we continued to capture birds in those newly restocked areas and then move them further around in the state. Mm, okay. Um, but, but yeah, the Turkey Federation helped a lot with that. And then nowadays, you know, our relationship, we've got a biologist on staff with them. They assist with working with like the Forest Service through stewardship type work. So 
they go out and they work with them to capture timber sales that they have, use the funds that are generated from those, the receipts that they get to put that money back into the, the ground right there on those forests in a project area to do more, more of that mid rotation type habitat work that we're talking about going through and, you know, thinning out the mid story, creating some opportunities for that understory um, vegetation to take off. Yeah. Uh, we also work with them with the, uh, the wild Turkey and Northern Bob white cost share program. So we have, a voluntary turkey stamp here in the state, as well as a voluntary bobwhite quail stamp. Okay. The funds ge- generated from those stamps are primarily put towards habitat work on public lands. So we take those funds in cooperation with funds that are raised by the National Wild Turkey Federation through their banquet system that go into what's what's known as their Hunting Heritage Habitat Super Fund. Okay. Hopefully, I got all that yeah, correct. That's but yeah, but all those dollars go go back into conservation on the ground. So we've teamed up with them. We take all of the dollars raised from those stamps and from that fund that they have, and then we solicit projects from public um, agencies to try to go out there and improve habitat on the ground for wild turkeys and quail, which you know primarily use the exact same type of habitats. Um, Wild turkeys are much more of a generalist, whereas quail themselves are, are much more of specialists. So they, for pretty much their entire life history, they require habitat conditions that look very similar to what's behind me in this image. Um, whereas turkeys, I mean, they, they're generalists. They can be successful in a lot of different habitat situations, you know, vegetation communities. But where they do best is in these areas that look very, very similar to what's required by quail so by putting all of our um kind of eggs in one basket we're we're doing a lot more for habitat in those areas as opposed to sitting there and just trying to take the scattergun approach and, and doing a little bit over here for one species and a little bit over here for the other yeah um you know because if, if the quail stamp went out there and just tried to do projects on their own you know that they'd only hit a small amount of acres where mm-hmm. by combining all these together we're, we're hitting a much greater area yeah yeah, that makes sense. Um, one question I just thought of, and this is kind of again back to like a, a private landowner. If there was if there was one plant or one um, food source that you could, if you were going to do a food plot um, for turkey, and you said, "I just I really want to get my turkey population up, and I want to create just this awesome food source," what would be the one one plant that you would put seeds down? So I actually probably wouldn't recommend just putting one okay. one thing down for, for turkeys, you know, being that, you know, you, there's a lot of variability in any given year. Um, you know, you can put a food plot out on the ground. I'm not saying, you know, don't put those out if you want to, particularly from a, from a hunting perspective, you want to have an opportunity to, to kill a bird and are hoping to attract it to that area. Right. Um, which, so if you're doing that, you know, I tell most folks to keep it pretty simple. You know, we, um, clovers, you know, those, those things that you can put in during the winter months, you can frost seed, you know, clovers, you can get, you know, a fall food plot you can put in for deer with, with winter wheat and those clovers. And, you know, you do great during deer season. It's still pretty low growing right. by the time you get out to this point. Cause as it's other things are starting to green up, the deer start to shift out of there. And before it gets really tall and, and lush, the, the turkeys can go in there and, you know, bug around, feed on the, um, 
new green growth that's coming up and you know you still have that opportunity to see them you know out there in front of you if you set up on the edge of the field so if you you know get that harvest opportunity you're you're going to be able to hopefully capitalize on it yeah but as far as you know trying to manage for those birds themselves and, and thinking about it from that nesting and broodering standpoint you know you can do a lot more without even probably in most cases even planning anything you know you manage you know an open you know field pasture type system you manage it for native uh, grasses and forbs. You know, you can go out there and, you know, depending on what the situation is right now, you know, if it's a fescue and bahia or Bermuda grass pasture, you might need to go in there and do some some additional work to kind of kill that stuff out to allow the more beneficial native plants to come up Okay. Um, first. But primarily, you can do a lot more in those lands with just burning it and or, you know, providing um you know periodic disturbance you know whether that's mowing or or going in there and maybe lightly disking you know in the winter uh to to encourage some of those other natives to come up so then come the early spring you get a lot of that lush green growth coming up that's easily accessible for those birds gotcha gotcha that's cool yeah jeremy earlier whenever you were talking about different states shipping in different birds kind of moving birds around um first question how is there very many different species? I think what is there four total turkey species in North America? Is that there, there's actually there's there's five there's actually well there's one species of okay. wild yeah. turkey in, in, up in the you know the United States continental U.S. Uh-huh. and into Canada. There's five subspecies of it. So you've got the eastern wild turkey, which is the most wide range in subspecies. Uh, they pretty much occur from Louisiana, and they're going to bleed a little west of this line, but Louisiana up to, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and east. Um, when you get into peninsular Florida, so, you know, south of the, oh, Steinahatchee, um, Jacksonville kind of line, so from the, kind of the Big Bend to northeast Florida and south, you're looking at the Osceola um, mm-hmm. subspecies. You get out in the central plains, you're dealing with Rio Grande wild turkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, further out west in the mountains, you're looking at Miriam's wild turkeys. Mm-hmm. And then down in like Arizona, New Mexico, and, and into Mexico, you've got the Gould's wild turkey. Um, and then you'll hear there is one other species of, of turkey that's out there. It's down on the Yucatan Peninsula um, in Mexico or Central America, sorry, Central America. And um, that's the oscillated wild turkey. Mm-hmm. Or oscillated turkey and you know it's a very very colorful bird it looks a lot more like a, a peacock than <laughs> a turkey or a, cro- a cross between the two. Oh, that's cool mm-hmm. i have to look that up yeah so so in arkansas we obviously are primarily eastern do we have any other subspecies in the state we do not i believe you know there was points in time where they attempted to to put out some other subspecies like rio grands um we had you know particularly the river valley um some of that habitat is is similar to what you find out west in you know more in oklahoma Mm -hmm. kansas and places um so they attempted to put some birds out there but but those didn't end up taking you know i'm sure some of those genetics probably got into the local populations but in general it's it's solely eastern wild turkeys here in the state gotcha yeah that was my question if they adapted well and if states actually did that kind of shipped them in and out and you know tried things out because i know the the merriam is that how you pronounce it merriam yeah um that's a highly sought after bird they're really 
They have the white tips, right, on their fans. Yep. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, they, they definitely they move birds to a lot of different places trying things back when um, they were trying to get those initial restocking efforts going. You know, I know when I was in Florida, there was talk where some of those birds, you know, Osceola's ended up up in, you know, Maryland or New Jersey, you know, in some of these coastal areas that were more swampy. They thought they'd do well up there. They didn't. Um, you know, they've moved. There's some states out west that are well beyond the traditional range of a lot of the turkey subspecies in the in the country. And you've got states, I think it's like Washington and Oregon, that have Easterns and Miriams and and Rios all kind of rolled up in one. Just a little you know, bit of everything out doing there. Yeah. yeah. That is cool. That's really cool. I want to talk now about um, – by the way, I just looked at a picture of those oscillated turkeys that look like peacocks. <laughs> Are turkeys related to peacocks? Because it's like so similar, even with like the the tail feathers sticking up, they almost kind of look like eyeballs on some of them. Are they are they closely related? <laughs> Do you know? Oh, I'm, I'm gonna sit here and get myself in trouble here because <laughs> you know it's been a long time since I looked at the the genetic trees, but I, I'm sure peacocks kind of fall within that that family. But I right. I probably I'd probably steer away from trying to actually <laughs> give you an answer stuff. on that. Yeah. I'm going to blank. They're beautiful. They look like almost like jewelry. It's like they got a bright mm. blue head and turquoise type feathers. And Man, that's cool. Mm. I've never seen one of those. So, Jeremy, yeah. real quick, kind, kind of off-topic question. We we talked about this on our last um, podcast, Kyle and I. Um, I've always heard growing up, obviously, turkeys have great vision. And they, you know, some of the best that come out of the hunting game. Um is it true that they can see an additional color than us or most wildlife? Man, you guys are really starting to tap, tap me into a whole bunch of things that I don't think about on a very regular basis. The hard questions uh, are coming, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah apparently. <laughs> maybe somebody should else take my job. I'm, I'm, I'm failing here. No, um, I'm trying to remember. I believe they have more rods in their eyes so they can see color. I can't remember that they can see it. Diff- any different colors than us okay. um but they they have pretty good vision in general yeah yeah i, I think i'd heard maybe like uv rays or uv light they can see some yeah something similar to i that. remember learning about that like how light works in school and there's like different <laughs> spectrums and you got ultra gamma and gamma rays and you ultraviolets and all that stuff i don't know if turkeys can see no that idea. or not no that'd be idea. cool if they can yeah like superpower <laughs> make them that much tougher we always joke that if turkey could smell like deer, they would be even more impossible than they already are to hunt. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 And I know waterfowl, you know, in particular, I believe they can see some of that, that UV spectrum. I mean, I know that's mm-hmm. been a big push in recent years with some of the decoys um, where they're putting some of that into their, their paint schemes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. That's supposed to make them pop a little bit more, particularly up, you know, at, at elevation when those ducks are looking down at you. So mm-hmm. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised it's the same in turkeys. It's just not something that I've, I've thought about in a long, long, yeah. long time to, <laughs> to give you a defin- definitive answer. And, and yeah, I had to, I had to double check myself here on the, um, on the peacocks real quick. Cause I, I'm pretty sure they are, that they are in the same family in order okay. as, um, as turkeys. They're just different, different species altogether. Gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, looking at that picture, I was like, that is too similar to a peacock to not yeah. be somewhat related. It seems like. And you, you, and you occasionally see peacocks uh, and turkeys running around together. Um, I know a lot of folks keep peacocks as, you know, kind of ornamentals. They like having them on their property and 
and some folks just let them roam, you know, at points. And so, I mean, I, I know when I was doing my master's research in Georgia, South Georgia, that, you know, we had a peacock or two running with a, one of the, the hen flocks that we'd see occasionally. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's always neat to see when they're, they're wandering about. It is so cool. They're, they're such interesting birds, turkeys, peacocks. Like the first time I saw a turkey in the wild, I was like, there's no way that's a real thing. Like it was just foreign to me to see something that, looks like that it's like a big chicken walking around the woods and it's able to survive in the wild i'm like you just look like meat on stick legs yeah just ready to be eaten um but they're just they're just cool looking birds um okay so so i want to kind of transition into the next topic um you talked a little bit about history of the turkey population um specifically to arkansas um what what have we seen in the, in say the last um I don't know, 30 to 40 years in the state of Arkansas. What are some of the trends that you've been seeing leading up to this point? Um, give me a little background on on what Game and Fish has been observing over the last several decades. Okay. So, yeah, just, just like I was mentioning before, you know, a lot of states saw, you know, pretty hefty declines early on in the 1900s and started a lot of those trap and transfer programs back in the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and that lasted on into the you know late 80s and 90s before a lot of states considered their their restoration efforts complete and successful. Right. Um, so you know, if we're talking going back 30, 40 years, you know, that's that's as turkey populations were really starting to kind of begin to hold their own throughout a lot of the state. Um, most of the Ozarks and the the Washitas were were restocked first. You know the the original thought was that those heavily forested areas were prime turkey habitat okay. because that that's where most turkeys were found. They were, you know, areas that were far away from people, far off the roads, you know, they were, they were holdovers, you know, of birds that just hadn't, hadn't got exploited yet. Right. And so we, we thought that was the best place for, for those birds to be when in reality we found later on as we started stocking more, what was considered at the time marginal habitat that had more of that interspersion of, of open land habitats that the turkeys actually did a lot better, you know, in those kind of edge systems where they had a little bit of everything. Yeah. A lot more diversity. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, when you got into the eighties and nineties, we we're seeing a lot of those, those more, what again was considered marginal at the time, those habitats getting, getting stocked and starting to fill in and populations were starting to do well, but, but hunting at that time was, was still relatively, you know, I don't want to say it was new. I mean, we've been hunting turkeys for, you know, probably a hundred years or more, but, you know, people just weren't that into it at that point in time. You had some folks that, you know, spent a lot of time. You talked to a lot of hunters that were around back in the seventies and eighties and maybe even the early nineties. And, you know, they could count on one hand, the number of turkey hunters that, you know, they, they knew or, or would see when they were out hunting. Yeah. And, you know, you got into the the nineties and you saw, you know, Primos and the truth and a lot of the, the early, um, hunting videos, you know, as that as video cameras came out, you know, cassette tapes, you know, that people were learning all they could, but it, there wasn't a real mainstream thing until, you know, Primos took off and people were starting to see, you know, these hunting videos on VHS and that was spreading throughout the country and, you know, turkey hunting all of a sudden exploded. Yeah. Um, and so you saw these populations that had been rebounding. They weren't getting harassed 
too hard early on. So the, you know, the early harvest from the eighties and the nineties didn't look all that crazy. They were, they were where we're at or lower, you know, currently. So, you know, they were less than 7,000 bird harvest. When you get back into the eighties, you know, you're starting to see two to 3,000 bird harvests and started to climb, you know, through the late eighties, continue to climb through the, the early 2000s or sorry, through the nineties. And then when we got to the early 2000s, you know, population has been doing really well. Hunter numbers started to increase. Popularity was, you know, going through the roof. Uh, the commission at that time thought, you know, populations were doing well enough that they expanded a lot of the hunting opportunities and provided a lot more days to the season. I think we went from about 24 days on average through the mid nineties. And we started jumping up to 35 to 39 days through about 2004. Okay. We reached our peak in harvest in 2003, just under 20,000 turkeys. Wow. And then, then all of a sudden, you know, coming off, off that peak, we just started this big downward slide that we've continued to kind of see through today. Since a lot of that was since 2003. So, you know, you killed nearly, nearly 20,000 in 2003. I think it dropped down to about 16 to 17,000 birds in 2004. There was a lot of concern at that point, so they ended up cutting the season length by a week or so. The next couple of years continued to see lower harvest. They dropped. They took more days off the season, and we got all the way down to a 16-day season um, plus the two-day youth hunt from about 2011 through 2020 okay. until we got the more recent season structure that we put in place starting last spring. But so you saw that significant reduction in in the amount of time that was available to hunting. And then with that, you obviously saw declines in, in what that harvest was. Some of those were because population was declining. Some of those were were fueled and probably went a little further beyond than just what the you know population was looking like because we took a lot of that opportunity away right. the more the more the more days of opportunity you have, the more birds you can potentially harvest. So the more of those days you take away, obviously you're going to have fewer and fewer birds getting taken. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, that's an interesting, um, you know, kind of dynamic I hadn't thought of before is just because your harvest harvest rates are dropping doesn't necessarily mean your, your Turkey population is declining. If you got to kind of take in everything into account and consider what new regulations did we put in place? How, you know, did we limit the season? What else is going on? Um, those two factors can be separate. It it is a good way to track and maybe survey. Is that the best way that you guys survey is just harvest rates? Or I know you mentioned a a couple other surveys you do. Yeah. So that's, so that's the, one of the big ones. I mean, obviously you, you you look at those trends in harvest and that's still something we can look at. I mean, but is, it's not, it's not an apples to apples comparison necessary as you go back through time because of those regulation changes. So, you know, in addition to those season timing changes or season timing and season length changes that were made over the past 20 years, we also had what was legal to take. So, you know, back prior to 2000, you know, every hunter could fill up their, their entire uh, statewide bag limit with Jake's in 2000. We reduced that to hunters being able to only take one Jake. And so we went from a period when about 40 plus percent of our harvest on average was, was made up of Jake's. We dropped that down to about 25% on average between 2000 and 2010. 
And then since that time, we reduced the take of jakes to just youth um, age 6 to 15 are being allowed to, to harvest one. And that's dropped it all the way down to 4% of the harvest. So that's a pretty significant amount of birds that you've immediately removed for, from being available to harvest. Yeah, that's um, huge. But, but so there's that, you know, when you look at harvest. But then in addition, we also look at uh, our spring gobbler hunting survey, which is running right now. It's typically we capture kind of information on the population during folks scouting efforts, you know, when they're going out there just trying to locate birds, you know, what they're seeing while they're out there, you know, number of hens, number of gobblers, jakes, keep track of those counts, keep track of the gobbling activity the same through the hunting season mm-hmm. and try to get some of that location information from folks. So we can kind of see what that, that hunting activity looks like from year to year. But in addition, we can kind of monitor what that spring population is looking like um, prior to harvest and during harvest. And then in addition to that survey, we also run the the annual wild turkey and northern bobwhite quail population survey. And that historically was done from June 1st through August 31st. And so it ran those three months of the summer. We keep it open year round now to collect as much information as we can on populations. But we still primarily put a lot of effort into that summer months because we're looking at reproductive effort. How many young birds are getting put on the landscape? in relation to the number of adults that are running around. So the, we're primarily looking at what's known as the pulp per hen index there. So that's just a, a ratio of the number of young observed to the number of adult females in the population during that time. And when you start seeing numbers approaching two pulps per hen or higher, you're looking at you know a stable to increase in population. When you start getting much lower than that, you know, you're possibly, possibly looking at a declining population. So that, that's what our other, you know, big index that we look at to monitor populations from year to year. And if you get back to the 2015 to 2019 time period here in the state, we are seeing some of the lowest reproductive indices on record, you know, really, really poor. Really? The last couple of years have been the, the best two years of reproduction we've had on record since 2012 and 13. It's, it's not exactly where we want to see it. You know, we have been hovering right about one pulp per hen the last couple of years statewide. The estimate's been hovering around 1.5. So, you know, we have basically a half a pulp um, increase in our in our reproductive effort. There's some variability in that. So, you know, depending on the number of observations you get, you know, there, there's some level of error, you know, up and down from that. Sure. Yeah. I think we're probably closer to two, two pulps per hen than, than what we had been, you know, previously. And I think we're starting to see that now. We've, we've been seeing a lot more jakes and stuff on the landscape this year. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm hopeful for the, the future here. You know, this year I think we'll be okay in terms of harvest. But I think next year, you know, we'll probably be looking even better with the number of birds that are running around this spring. Yeah. Well, kudos, I want to say kudos to you because you took over, what, three years ago? In the last two years, the best that's it's ever been, or it's been for a while. Yeah. So, Jeremy, thank you for, yeah. for your efforts. Good job, Jeremy. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could say it had anything to do with me, but, <laughs> I, you know, I think a lot of that was weather, and, you know, that's, you know, sometimes that, that helps a lot. If you can get those kind of drier conditions in May and June, you know, when a lot of those turkey nests are on the ground and just starting to think about hatching. Mm-hmm. Um those pulps can't thermoregulate so if they're getting wet and cold you know you, you lose a lot of birds really really quick okay so the last couple of years we've had a little bit drier conditions you know 
that, than we've had in, in the previous several years. So that that's been a bit of a godsend, and hopefully we can keep that up this year. Yeah, mm. absolutely. That makes sense. That, that's probably a big, you know, portion of the actual hatch. You know, flood season is right there. Does flooding affect it pretty hard too? It can. I mean, that that's a little bit more localized, you know, yeah. so particularly yeah. you get into like areas like the River Valley and over in the Delta, you know, where most turkey habitat that remains is along those major river corridors. So you're looking at the White, the Cache, the Mississippi, you know, if, if there's birds nesting in those areas and it's a real wet year and you see those floodwaters come up, you know, while they're still sitting on the nest, it, it just wipes them out. and You have some pretty, you know, pretty good boom and bust cycles in, in those areas. but. Mm-hmm. They were luckily drier these last couple of years too, especially this past year. So they had pretty good reproduction in 2021. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, what would you say a healthy, I guess, target or goal for the harvest report would be this year? I'm pretty conservative in what I anticipate will be be this year. So we hmm. killed just about 7,000 birds last year. I would anticipate that we'll be higher than that, but I'm not going to suggest that we're going to be really notably higher we'll probably get into the upper sevens you know if i'm going to throw throw a number out i'll be i'll be happily surprised if we jump into the eights um but i I think that's probably going to be a realistic expectation for this season Mm. because what i I figure has happened we had you know from 15 to 19 when you had about four of the lowest or four of the five lowest you know reproductive years on record means our population was getting fairly down there by the time we hit 2020 so when we had a good year, you know, they, they suggest that you can about double your population in a pretty good year of reproduction. And, but we would have been at such a low point that, you know, we, we may have doubled in 2020, but it might not have been enough to truly notice it all that much. Whereas last year, when we backed that up with another good hatch, we about doubled it again. So, you know, you're, you're starting to see it a lot more now. I'm getting a lot more, you know, reports from folks that they're seeing more birds than they have and, in years on their property. And so if we, like I say, if we can get another one of those, you know, seasons or that are a little drier this summer that, I mean, we could be, you know, we could be right back there. And then, you know, thinking about the future and what ultimately I expect a a realistic level of harvest to be, if we're kind of at the top of our game, of our populations where it, it would be at its kind of peak, you know, I'd anticipate that somewhere between, you know, probably right around 12,000 birds would be more realistic Harvest. this day and age. Yeah. Okay. When you're, and that's just adult gobblers for the most part. I mean, you've got a few jakes getting harvested by youth, but in general, you're trying to look at that, that adult gobbler harvest. So you go back into the early 2000s, um, you know, at our peak harvest, we were only killing about 15,000 adult gobblers. So, you know, when you try to relate that to now, you know, back in the, 2013 to 2016 time period we got that number back up between 11,000 and 12,000 adult gobblers being harvested so we weren't nearly as far down as a lot of people you know suggest excuse me um you know where they they talk about being you know 65 percent declines in in populations here it's it's probably not nearly that um that stark of a decline yeah right i i've seen that number before 65 percent. i was reading just an, an article where it was talking about i think arkansas and missouri like missouri it was a number like 50 percent. i saw and then arkansas was 65 percent decline um <laughs> Dang. so 
I didn't realize turkeys fluctuated that much. The actual population—that's crazy. Yeah, but you're, but you're saying that sixty-five yeah. percent isn't necessarily accurate. Is that what you just? I, I, yeah, I, I suspect that's a pretty inflated number here because folks are looking at strictly at that harvest number, but they're not taking into account the days that have been taken off the season. They're not gotcha. taking into effect those those jakes that have been removed from the harvest. So. That's what I talk about when I, I say that it's really difficult to look back at a lot of those previous years and compare apples to apples because we're we're so much different than we were, which which provides a lot of a lot of fog in the data to be able to say exactly where our population is at. Yeah. You know, we're down, surely. You know, people are talking about how few birds they see comparison to years past. So, you know, we're definitely down, but to what degree is is the hardest thing to nail down at this point in time? Yeah, sure when you think about kind of long-term and sustainable numbers and, and where you expect the harvest to sit, you, you mentioned 12,000, um, statewide, do you have an idea of just in total how many birds there are? And then, um, on top of that, is there looking to the future st- sustainability wise, is there any, um, desire to kind of expand the season again to where it's not just adult toms and you're opening it back up to jakes and getting away from kind of the you know pretty strict regulations that that are in place now is there any appetite to get away from that in the future once we get to a sustainable point yeah so i mean there's two parts there so you know first you know understanding what our, our population looks like you know that's that's a challenge everywhere turkey populations they're they're not easy to estimate Right. on the landscape. So, you know, historically what's been used is you estimate the harvest is about 10% of your, your population. Okay. Um, you know, in most cases that's been when you've been targeting, you know, your entire male segment of the population equally, you know, that jakes and adult gobblers are available to harvest. Um, so, you know, early on back in the early two thousands, they were estimating that we had nearly 200,000 turkeys here in the state. That may have been somewhat inflated because we probably overshot um, the birds during that handful of years when we got to that peak. So, you know, when you shoot nearly 20,000 birds and you're saying, okay, that's 10%, so you're getting to 200,000. Well, if we were if we were over harvesting in that period, it's unlikely that our population was quite that high. Yeah. Sure. Um, so if we use that same metric today and we just, you know, we're trying to do apples to apples, we'd think, okay, maybe we have 70,000 turkeys here in the state. But, you know, that's probably a low estimate. You know, we're, we're probably somewhere in the ballpark of 100,000. If you were to try to, you know, think about how many jakes would potentially be harvested in, in comparison to those years past. But even that's, you know, it's it's just a, an educated guess. It's really not a, a definitive answer. I'm, right. I'm hopeful that we can get some better data as, as the years go on to, to get a more accurate estimate of what that population looks like. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then as, as far as, you know, maintaining regulations and thinking about, you know, expanding opportunity in the future, you know, ideally, I think we're probably in a, a scenario now where we, we put forth what we believe is probably the best suite of regulations to help, help manage turkey populations kind of into the future. There may need to be minor adjustments down the line, but I, I think, you know, maintaining long-term stable regulations where, you know, those those factors going year to year are the same. That's probably 
going to be more beneficial to maintain that than to, to think about expanding opportunity, at least for some time. Right. I'm, I'm not going to suggest that, you know, sometime down the line, maybe we do have the ability to, to adjust those regulations and increase opportunity somewhat. Um, you know, whether that's opening, you know, Jake Harvest back up, whether that's expanding the, the season length or, or things like that. But I, th- I think right now, for at least the foreseeable future, we'd be talking about staying where we're at and hopefully allowing those conservative um, regulations to, to take effect and allow and, and hopefully allow the population to benefit from them. I mean, some of that's still going to take a lot of um, help from you know, the weather, mother nature and habitat work to, to see things, you know, do, do well into the future. So, right. you know, it's kind of right now we're going to sit, sit and watch and hopefully see things move, move in a positive direction and just keep working on habitat work and, you know, what other things we can to hopefully bolster populations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. On the regulations right now, it's, it's the regulation is you can only shoot an adult, Tom, a, a gobbler. What is the idea behind that? Um, is because my understanding and, and, you know, of course, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is, um, gobblers are like, they're breeding the hens. You can only, only gobblers, adult toms will breed the hens. Jake's aren't the ones doing the breeding. So what is the thought process behind only harvesting, um, toms versus harvesting Jake's or, or, you know, an, another kind of mix or ratio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean the the primary driver I think for that regulation when it went into effect, it's go, we're going back to 2011 when they when they put that into place, and I, I believe at the time the thought was to allow more of those juvenile males to survive to an age that they would be capable of breeding. Okay. You know, if you think about it, like I was talking before, you know, prior to the early 2000s, we were seeing 40% harvest rates. So, well. 40% of our harvest was made up of jakes. How much of a percentage of our actual or how what their harvest rates were of jakes at that time, we really don't know. Uh, we have some recent research where we've tried to assess the, the impact of the no jake regulation to where only youth are, are able to kill one. And we're seeing about 90% survival of those, those juvenile males from the time that they're, you know, hatched to, well, I say by the time that they're, they're caught as a Jake. So, you know, within their first year when we catch them, put a band on them, not about 90% of those birds were surviving that next year to be available to harvest. Wow, okay. um, we were seeing very, very few of those birds were actually being harvested. I think, I think within the research, they had zero. I don't, I don't believe any of them were, were harvested on the public lands where they were, were monitoring it. And so, you know, the thought process is that they're not getting harvested that first year, but then they're available for harvest later. But with that, it obviously does put significant pressure on that that adult segment of the population who are doing a lot of the breeding. Um, you know, we're one of two states that have this regulation in place, Mississippi being the other. Uh, the, the difficulty is, you know, with potentially ever, you know, trying to shift that regulation and, and move back to, say, maybe allowing, you know, harvest of jakes is, you know, with as many turkey hunters as we have now, you know, that, that could be a significant swing in the harvest, you know, in a given year or two that may may further reduce that male segment of the population and really make you reliant on on those years of hatch, you know, good hatches. Because as soon as you get them, you know, those birds are available for harvest. They're getting whacked. Um, we're, we're essentially still seeing that now. It's just delayed to, to two years right. um, post-hatch. 
uh, where we're seeing, you know, about 70% um, survive or sorry, about 30% survival rates of, of our two-year-old age class birds. So, you know, the, the moment they're available for harvest, we're, we're essentially, you know, hammering them, which, yeah. which makes sense. I mean, those, those two-year-old birds and everybody talks about getting out there in the woods and a, and a two-year-old is a hard goblin two-year-old that, that's willing to come in and they're, yeah. you know, you'll take them all day long any day of the week because, you know, they, they just come in, they put on a show, they have a good, you have a good hunt, you end up killing a bird and you're excited. It's those three, four, five plus year old birds that have been through the game a time or two. And they're, they're a little bit more tougher, tougher to, uh, to get to fool and, and bring them in. Yeah. Can, can you tell a difference between a two and a three year old or four year old whenever you're hunting and, and what is, what is something that you could tell a difference from? So you're probably unlikely to tell the difference between the two when you're hunting, yeah. you know, particularly, you know, just, just out there, if you see them, um, you know, you might notice spur length or beard length, but I mean, there's a lot of variability there. And there. so, you know, you can see two year olds with longer spurs. You can see older birds with shorter spurs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of it, you might sit there and, you know, try to claim that, you know, you're, Oh, that's a three or four year old bird, or I've been on this bird for a couple of years now. And he's just, I can't fool him. He's, he's doing the same thing every year, but the likelihood that basically once they hit about two years old, you know, that, that's about as far as you can tell with, with confidence when you're out there in the woods, you know, just seeing that long beard, seeing those spurs, seeing that full tail fan. Uh, when you get them in hand, I mean, what you end up seeing, and I see from a lot of the band reports, uh, when we have folks call in, you know, birds that have been banded, and I'll, I'll provide the information to them. And, you know, we'll get birds routinely that are, you know, three, four, five plus years old. And, you know, I'll get five five plus year old birds and they've got three quarter of an inch, you know, spurs and, you know, for as rocky as the terrain is, as hilly as the terrain is here. I mean, they're, they're breaking them off constantly. They're wearing them down, you know, walking up and down those hills. And um, so it's real difficult to sit there and and try to say accurately, just looking at like spur length or something like that. I mean, what about the number of beards? I mean, you know, you hear of double, triple, as many as 10 beards sometimes, you know, does that, does mm-hmm. that determine age at all? Or can a two-year-old bird have several beards? Oh, uh, you can have, you know, two-year-old birds could have, you know, several beards. I mean, a lot of that, I think, is genetics and, and some sort of a, a mutation within the uh, papilla, you know, where that stuff grows out of, where you end up having splits in it. There's multiple segments going up the chest. And because, I mean, I, I know, several folks that have harvested jakes with with multiple beards i've seen personally seen you know a couple beards with seven eight beards but um you know those are just kind of genetic genetic abnormalities that you know result in a a lot of those different beards Uh getting growing out from those those different sections kind of like a drop tine on a deer i guess genetically mutated i guess you could say what about hens with a beard is that like a really old hen that has a beard or can any hen, I guess, have a beard? I'd say just about any hen could have a beard, but it's, it's too, it's probably a, a genetic link there. And whereas about 10 to 12% of the population is estimated to have a beard. Um, I don't think there's anything out there that really suggests that, you know, a two, three, four, five year old hen is going to all of a sudden start growing a beard. You know, I, I hear from a lot of folks thinking that, Oh, she's got a beard. That means she has more testosterone. She's, mm-hmm. she's barren. She's, you know, 
let's take her out of the population. The reality is, you know, those birds are, are just as reproductively active as the other females on the landscape. I mean, okay. anecdotally, you know, I, I've seen some of those birds be the most successful hens. I mean, it's, hmm. it's probably not true to say that all those bearded hens are going to be the most um, successful hens on the landscape. Um, but, you know, they, they're ju- all I, I say to say that is, you know, they're, they're just as successful as, as the other hens on the landscape. So, you know, we, we recently restricted and prohibited the harvest of bearded hens here in Arkansas. Um, you know, so you're, you're not necessarily protecting a, a ton of birds from the harvest each year. I think we were typically seeing less than a couple hundred birds harvested each year. But what you are doing in those local areas is is keeping those birds from being harvested while they're actively laying the clutch. Right. I mean, probably, you know, like most hens, you know, you're probably seeing 70, 80, 90 plus percent of those bearded hens are probably laying a nest and it trying to incubate it each year. And so when you start getting out into our hunting season, if you're removing a female of any kind at that point in time, she she is either in the laying process or in the incubation process or about to start one or the other. Yeah. Um, and so if we can keep as many of those on the landscape, uh, the better. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, last thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about was um, some of the research projects that you guys are working on um, within, you know, you and your Turkey team across the state. Um, we were talking about song meters, which is new to me. I've never heard of that term. Um, what are you guys doing with the song meters and, and, and what are those? Yep. So a song meter or a acoustic recording device, it's, it's basically, if you think about a trail camera on the landscape, you're going out there and taking pictures. Um, this is just like that, except for it's taking audio files. It's, it's recording ambient noise. And so there's been a lot of research in recent years, um, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Louisiana, starting to look at, the timing of gobbling, the, the duration, how that's related to um, different variables like barometric pressure, weather. Um, and we're starting to think about putting those out on the landscape here. We've, we've actually just put out some here in the last week and a half, kind of on a trial run, hoping to expand that next year and get them out from about March 1st through May 31st. To, to look at our goblin chronology from north to south across the state and to see how that relates to our season timing. So, you know, what you'll be able to do is these record all ambient noise and they're set to record from about a half an hour before sunrise to two and a half hours after sunrise because that's where the majority of your goblin activity occurs every day. You're probably looking at 80 to 85% or more of your goblin activity is going to occur during that three hour window. And so it saves a lot of battery life. You don't have to go through that much more um, audio data just to tease out a few more gobbles. Yeah. I was going to reality is the, how you go through all that data. If you're hanging those over several months and you're just yeah. listening to ambient noise, it sounds peaceful. It sounds it like does. a nice piece yeah. <laughs> audio recording. That, thankfully, thankfully we're, we're moving along in, in that, that regard where we don't have to sit there and listen to near as much um, of that audio data as we once did it. So, you know, early on they were using some, some software out there that could tease out gobbles within a specific frequency range. Okay. But unfortunately there's a lot of other species out there that make calls and there's different noises that all fall within that range. And I mean, you get millions upon millions of gobbles 
you know, in your, your recordings and you'd have to manually go through those and listen to each one, you know, they, they pull out a little snippet, you know, a few seconds around each call, um, that they've deemed as a possible gobble and, you know, 90, probably 95 plus percent of those were, you know, cows mooing, um, great horned owls calling crows, you know, all these different species and you'd have to weed all that out. And so now they, they've moved on, they've generated some more machine learning algorithms that can start looking at not only that sound, but also the, the image of that, um, that gobble on, a, I believe it's a spectrogram. And you can, so it, it uses a computer program to run through that and further tease out those gobbles from those other sounds to reduce the uh, post-processing time, yeah. the manual processing time significantly. That's and I'm hopeful crazy. that we're getting, yeah, I'm hopeful we're getting close to the point where we can, you know, count probably for some level of bias. There'll probably be, you know, always going to be a few false positives, but get to the point where you're starting to get 70, 80, maybe 90 plus percent accurate so that you can, you can kind of have a correction factor to get to the point where it's more plug and play with that data. Yeah. Because, you know, if you have to, trying to spend that much time going through and listening to all these files and to confirm yes or no. I mean, it, it takes a lot of time, you know, whether it be my time or, or hiring a, a technician to go through all that. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of time to, yeah. you know, and, and money to, to spend when the reality is you're probably going to be able to see the trends, even if you can account for some small amount of, um, you know, non-target, calls within there so say that's 10 percent. you know you just adjust the values that you're getting by that amount and so that then we can see here in the state you know when does that gobbling activity start to ramp up you know the, the peaks that you may see how how the hunting season relates to that you know do we see significant drop-offs in that activity like we're seeing in a lot of other states as soon as you hunt because you know obviously dead birds don't gobble and then that the ones that do remain you know, start getting a little bit quieter because they start to get wise to what's going on in the woods during that period. Yeah. So it'd be good to tease that out. And then again, tease that out North to South to where, you know, is, is there really that much of a difference between South Arkansas and North Arkansas? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so with that, you, you capture all that data and you were talking about, um, you're hanging some of these song meters in unhunted areas. Um, and you're, you're specifically picking these areas. What is, how are you picking the areas? You know, how do you decide that we're going to go kind of research this area and test this area over another? So primarily, I mean, we're looking at public lands at this point. I mean, ideally in the future, I'd like to incorporate some, some private lands across the state as well, just to see the variability between different types of hunting pressure. Cause we, you know, we have several different areas, you know, we have spots that are not hunted, um, so that gives you this kind of picture of what turkeys would do in the absence of hunting. You know, is, is there any difference there? Do they gobble more continuously in through the, the turkey season? Whereas in these areas where we are hunting them, you know, how, how does that activity change there? Uh, we have areas in the state that are wide open to hunting, so you can go every day of the season. We have other areas that are open, you know, for permit hunts where they're open for a few days. They close for a few days open again for a few days and so on. You know, most areas have two to three hunts on the areas. So see how the activity is different there. You know, do we maintain a higher, higher level of gobbling activity on those areas versus the wide open areas? Um, just all kind of interesting things to, to look at and, and tease out. 
And then primarily, you know, since we're looking at public lands and I'm trying to go north to south of the state, I'm trying to look at areas that are known to have, you know, decent turkey populations on them Mm -hmm. so that we can guarantee that we're going to get goblin activity. Um, You know, we have some areas that, you know, they just they don't have near as high a turkey population on them. So you could put a lot of recorders out there, but you'd end up picking up a lot less activity. So, you know, trying to focus on areas where you can get good activity and, and know what the you know, the timing of that is in those different regions of the state based on that. Yeah. And then, you know, continue to work on efforts in those other areas to start boosting turkey populations. So maybe in the future we could use them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where have you seen, um, where are the most turkeys in the state of Arkansas asking for a friend? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So primarily, you know, when you look at our, our harvests over the past, you know, 20 years or so, yeah, you primarily are looking at that Fulton, Sharp, Izzard County region of the state. Okay. You know, so the kind of the eastern Ozarks, yep. eastern central Ozarks. Um, and then, you know, you get down to the Gulf Coastal Plain, down like around Union County. You know, there's a decent number of birds there. Part of that's because it's the largest largest county in the state. So, you know, just kind of per capita, you tend to take more, yeah, more sure. birds because there's more area to hunt. But you know, those are some of the, the hot spots, I guess, you know, for, for birds in the state. Um, gotcha. But regionally, you know, when you look at just the bigger, you know, clusters of, of counties, the Ozarks tend to be the, the highest population in the state, followed by the Gulf Coastal Plains. So, you know, the you're talking south of Fort Smith, south of the Washita's, all through, you know, where a lot of our pine timberlands are in the state. Right. Then you come up into the Washita's, you know, those East Basin ridges. That's our third highest. And then you get out into the Delta, East Arkansas, and that tends to be the lowest harvest because the habitat's so much more limited in those areas. Gotcha. Because that, that's just, it's not, it's more, is monogamous the word? Or maybe like it's, it's just more, you don't have the variability. One dimensional. One dimensional. Yeah. You don't have the forest. It's just all kind of plains. It's all farmland. There's not the, the shelter, the cover that they need. Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, that area probably would have had some really high turkey populations before a lot of that bottomland hardwood forest got turned into, you know, agricultural land, plowed under, leveled off. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the a lot of the topography out there may have only been, you know, several feet, you know, increases in in uh, elevation, but that may have been enough, you know, historically to allow turkeys to kind of get up out of floodwaters. Um, and still do all right when you had flood events, but you know, now where you've got a lot of rice agriculture and, um, you know, cotton and corn, you know, all these other, other, um, agricultural commodities out there that are, you know, expansive, you know, you can look for miles in some directions and, you know, not see a tree or, you know, see these woodlots, you know, a 40 or an 80, you know, way across these fields, you know, Turkey's not going to be able to sustain itself there. So, you know, you're stuck with those birds, like I said before, along those you know major river corridors where you still have the, you know some of that remaining uh, bottomland hardwood forest that's intact or being expanded upon now with you know efforts through uh, uh, WRE or CRP type practices where you're, you're trying to restore some of that subpar agricultural land to more you know native habitats. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um... Yeah, man, that is. I, I feel like I've learned so much. It's it's hard to digest it all. Um, if if you so for the, I kind of want to break it down here at the end and and just think for the average hunter and you know that hunts here in Arkansas. Um, 
what are what are you know two to three things that that they can do to increase their chance of success, whether that's habitat management on their own land or um, you know going to a new spot and they're wanting to scout, what can they look for? What are just break it down for me for just the average guy who wants to go you know see a turkey, hunt a turkey. What can he do to improve his chances this this turkey season? Asking for so a friend, the, right? Asking for a yeah. friend, of course. <laughs> so, so the primary thing that I tell everybody is to get out there and scout. I mean, the more time you put in before the season, the better. So, I mean, you know, we're sitting here now about a week out. I don't know when this will air, but yeah, um, you know, we're we're a week out from turkey season right now. It opens on the 18th, so. You know, if you haven't put any time in to this point, you're going to really want to be cramming pretty hard over the next week. But, you know, traditionally, like you get out in years from now, you know, get out there in um, March, get out there maybe even in late February and start, you know, covering ground. The birds will start gobbling, you know, all the way back at the end of January. It's not as frequent. You're not going to hear them near as often and they're going to move somewhat. But yeah. It's, it helps to start getting out there and, and see sign, you know, whether it's scratching, whether it's gobbling activity to help get yourself closer to, to where you want to be come the time the season starts. So, okay. so that's the big one, okay. you know, get out there and, and put some boots on, you know, burn some boot leather, burn some tire rubber and, right. and, and find some birds. Um, and then, you know, be patient, you know, that, that would be the other thing, you know, when you get into the season, you know, there's a lot of times those birds, you know, will shut up. If you hear them, you know, gobbling and, you know, they're supposed to be in the area, you think they're coming through, you know, where you're at, you know, just be patient, sit tight, you know, call every once in a while, be still, um, you know, a lot more turkeys have died from patience than, than otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Than calling them and really trying to fool them. You're not going to chasing after them. Oh man. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard a bird far off. I called to it. I, you know, I thought it was coming in, but then I thought it was going the other way. And I was like, oh, we just got to get up a little bit closer. Let's go walk another, you know, 30, 40 yards, and then we'll sit down again. And then it's like, that turkey sounds 30, 40 yards away again. And it's like, you just keep, I felt like I've just always bumped them, and I am I need to work on my patience is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, you know, some of the research that's out there now with GPS data, you know, we're starting to be able to see that. You know, birds show up at hunter locations, you know, hours after, you know, you first been calling, you know, you might, you might set up, you hear a bird, so you call and he may gobble back. He may not. And, you know, a lot of times those hunters leave, they decide, you know, we're not in the game. They, they either haven't heard him or he shut up and they don't think he's coming. So they leave and several, you know, three, four hours later, that bird's right on top of the spot where that hunter had been sitting That's looking amazing. for the bird that he heard, you know, hours ago. <laughs> oh um, so. That's crazy. That is, yeah, definitely, definitely makes you want to be more patient. Well, I'm, I'm excited now for turkey season, especially with what, what you were talking about with poult reproduction, uh, how the, the weather conditions have been favorable. I'm hoping that the, the private land that I'm hunting here in the Ozarks has got a few more birds on it. Yeah. Plenty to chase probably for sure. Yeah, definitely. A lot to chase. <laughs> cool. There you go. Well, well, that's all we got for you, Jeremy. Um, just want to again say thank you for coming on and and um, educating us, teaching us more about what you do, what your role is, um, and just talking about turkeys in general. Uh, it's it's really interesting stuff. I learned a ton. I feel like um, so. Just again, want to say thank you. Yeah, no problem. Glad to come be on here and you know talk what I could about turkeys with you guys. So yeah, it's always fun. Absolutely. If 
if someone, um, you know, wants to get in touch with you or reach out to you and they have more questions or um, anything like that, it, what's the best way to, to get a hold of you? Uh, the, the easiest way to get a hold of me is by email. It's just uh, my name, jeremy.wood at agfc.ar.gov. Um, it's, it's posted all over, uh, you know, our website on our turkey pages. Um, but you know, that's the easiest way. Otherwise, you know, just contact the office, you know, on our, um, the 1-800 number and, you know, just ask for me, ask to speak to the turkey program coordinator and they can get in touch with me. Yeah. The head, the head turkey man, the big man, the big man. (laughs) Cool. All right, Jeremy. Well, thank you again. Um, and for our listeners, that's all we got for you guys. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V, co-hosted by Adam Treese and Kyle Plunkett, and produced by Daniel Matthews. To sponsor an episode or for general advertising inquiries, reach out to us at ozarkpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This podcast is presented by Inland Outdoors.